God speak. Good to be with you. You made it out in the dark. Some of you have your night driver's license. That's such a blessing. <laughs> it, uh, you feel a little bit like chickens that want to roost with the darkness, getting a little, uh, I don't know if you feel like I do, a little, little sleepy with the time change, but we're going to make our way through it. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The team will get you a Bible if you forgot to bring one. We'll be turning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, open up in the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 8. We are going through the Anchored in the Word series, which is a two-year Bible reading. I want to encourage you to pick up one of these pamphlets. They're out there on the information counter. And uh, follow along with us. It's really amazing to have God's Word feed your soul as you're reading through. And because of that, we pick a section, and on Saturday nights, on a normal weekend, we've had about uh, three weeks of craziness with guests, with Eric Metaxas and Madison Cawthorn and uh, somebody else thrown in there in between. Who was that? Will Witt. That's right. Will Witt. Thank you. See, somebody's on top of it here. I'm like, I I didn't remember who, who all had been here. But with that, our rhythm has uh, been a little crazy with a lot of guests, but we want to get back into that wonderful rhythm of reading God's word weekly and then bringing a portion of scripture on a normal weekend. I take a section from the New Testament, and Rob usually takes one from the Old Testament. Last week was a little aberration because I was so ministered to by Proverbs in chapter 28 and 29, all the passages that spoke about uh, governmental leadership, so we delved into that, but normally. And so I want to take our passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 8, and if you've opened up in your Bibles, we're going to stand and read the first seven verses here to get us going. For our message, Jesus is better than, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, that Jesus is better than anything or anyone. Beginning in verse 1, now this is the main point of the things we are saying, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who are offering the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. It's a better covenant, better promises. Jesus is the best Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. We pray now that you would open our our hearts, that we would see wonderful things from your word, that you would teach us, that you would minister to us deep in our souls about the effectiveness, the sufficiency, Lord Jesus, of who you are in our life, that you conquered sin and death, the two great enemies that assault our soul and yet you conquered them both, that we might have victory over sin and victory over death. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
This passage of scripture is really about bringing in the new and out with the old. As Donald Gray Barnhouse, the minister for 40 years of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, quite famous, and those who are older believers like myself, he used to be on the radio all the time, him and J. Vernon McGee, right? And if you followed along with those things, but Donald Gray Barnhouse said of the book of Hebrews, he said, he had a really strange way of talking. He's like, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. And the reality is, is he was trying to move them from them going back to the old covenant and the old sacrifices of the temple. And he is saying that Jesus is the new and living way. He is better than all that. So the writer of Hebrews, because there's not a name attached to it, many believe it's Paul the Apostle, others have some uh, different ideas, but it's an unsigned document. And it's an individual that is unpacking how Jesus is better than everything that they trusted in in the Old Testament. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But just think about yourself. Here in America, we are innovators. We are constantly getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. We invent more things than anybody on the planet. And can you imagine just thinking about uh, chopping down a tree like this, or I would rather have a cool new high-tech chainsaw, right? How about traveling from New York all the way to LA this way? That would, you know, it usually took them about three or four months, but I'd rather go this way. By the way, this is the car of the year, and it's a 362 turbo, 362 horsepower turbocharge. This is the Mercedes E-Class, and this thing can fly, and so I don't own one, I'm just admiring it here for a moment. And, and if I was going to take a road trip from LA to New York, I would rather be on this than horseback. This guy, no, I don't want to go that way. How about this guy? Let's load up the family and travel across the country. You want to go this way? Or should we take the minivan? There we go. Can you imagine four months of your kids saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And and you didn't laugh if you're not a parent. So how about this? We could fly with the Wright brothers. We got one passenger here at Kitty Hawk, or we could go on a 747 that can seat anywhere between four and 500 people, depending on uh, the model of 747 that there is. You know, old school telephone. Here we have the iPhone 13. This thing can do everything but wash your dishes. Right, you can have your security camera, you can check it while you're in Hawaii and you're home here in Newbury Park. You can be looking at if anybody's in your backyard. You can adjust the lights, you can adjust the thermostat, right? You can Instagram everybody that you're in the bathroom and nobody cares, but you can do that if you want to because it's an iPhone 13. The old technology goes out. The other day somebody said, (laughs) I was asking him about a a movie that they had done, and they said, we have a DVD, and I looked at it, and I said, what am I going to do with that, (laughs) right? My computer, they no longer have DVD. (laughs) Mac doesn't have that. You have to get the the adapter and all all this other stuff. It's like, hey, if it's, isn't it loaded online, where can I click? I just want to point and click. Things pass by so fast. I remember this, when my son saw a big LP record, you, those of us who are older, and he pulled it out, and he goes, Dad, look at the size of the CD. Because <laughs> he had never seen anything like it. 
So this old technology, it goes by the wayside, and we might look at it with a bit of nostalgia for us who are older, and yet the reality is we never go back to that because something better has come along, right? Something better, something more efficient, something more fruitful. In Hebrews chapter one, the writer tells us that Jesus is better than the angels, In Hebrews chapter two, he says Jesus is better than the devil because he conquered the power of death that the devil had. Hebrews chapter three says Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter four, better than Joshua. Chapter five, better than the Old Testament high priest. Chapter seven, he's better than Abraham and the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is flat out better than, better than, better than. The next time you describe the book of Hebrews, just say Jesus is better than all the Old Testament concepts. Because he comes in this new and living way that blows everything away, and so that brings us to chapter eight, where the writer says in verse one, this is the main point of the things we're saying. You see, he's been building this case up to this point because there were Hebrews that were really connected to the Old Testament sacrifices. They were really connected to the feast. They were really connected with uh, the covenant and approaching God through the Old Testament covenant, and a new covenant had come along, and they are wanting to drift back to what was comfortable. That which, you know, some of us that grew up with religion, there's certain things that we miss, and when people start seeking God, oftentimes they go back nostalgically. Maybe you grew up in the Catholic church, or uh, an Anglican church where there's more liturgy, and you like the liturgy. Now, I don't care for the liturgy, I didn't grow up with that, and so when I go through it, uh, it's, it's non-impressive to me, but others are like, isn't it so special? Does it just touches my heart? And, and I, I understand that, they were raised with that. And there's a comfort level, but it's always uncomfortable to break into a new experience. These things are now going to be obsolete and old, and we need to come into the new covenant. There's a reason sitting in your lap, if you brought a Bible, that this is comprised of an old agreement, we call it the Old Testament or Old Covenant, and then the New Testament, a new agreement, a new covenant. And you are living your life with Jesus at the center of a new covenant, or if you are stuck in this old covenant, the law is your master and the law cannot do for you what Jesus and the power of the Spirit of God can do. And this is what the writer of Hebrews wants to teach us. So he says in verse one, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest, our Jesus is such a high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Right now, As we speak, just as we are sentient beings, we have senses, we are awake, we are alive, we are well. Jesus is alive and well. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints. There is another realm that we cannot see, and in that realm, Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, or the right hand of the Father in heaven, in glory, in the true tabernacle. And we'll see in a moment that the heavenly scene, Moses was told to make the earthly tabernacle of the Old Testament 
after this pattern or this model. In verse 3, it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who, are, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. I remember the first time I really studied the book of Hebrews. I was a young Christian, and I came across this passage, and I'd been reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I was really blown away by the Lord giving Moses this blueprint of a heavenly scene that he wanted to have an earthly model of. It's really cool. If you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Israel, you can go to this place that has a model of the first century Jerusalem. And it's a miniature model. It's probably as big as, say, this stage and all the way up to this front row. And you can walk all around it and they point things out. And it's a great way with the topography and things to be able to see this little model of Jerusalem. Well, the tabernacle that the Lord gave to Moses, the pattern, the blueprint that he downloaded to him, and he was to make it just like that because it was reflecting in a spiritual, supernatural, heavenly scene that Jesus now is in. Now, earthly priests offered prayers, they offered sacrifices, and they also were a bit of a clinic. They examined people for health reasons. If they had a leprosy on their skin, they went to the priests, they evaluated them. That's why when Jesus healed the 10 lepers, he said, now go show yourself to the priests. And the one realized he's healed the Samaritan and came back and thanked him. But they were to go to the priests, be examined because they had been excommunicated because of their skin condition or their leprosy. And so these are the things that the priests offered, but Jesus was gonna come and offer. He was not gonna offer sacrifices of animals. He was the sacrifice. He was gonna offer his own body as he is declared as the lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. Not only was he going to offer his own body as a sacrifice, but his sacrifice and his service was then to conquer in his ministry the two great enemies of your soul and my soul, and that is the power of sin. He died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead. So he conquered the power of sin at the cross and the power of death through his resurrection. What are two things that dominate your life? Sin. Sin and the inability to be obedient to God, and when you receive Christ, for the first time you have this power, this new power, to be able to break away from things that have haunted you and controlled you your entire life. You can finally say, no, it doesn't mean you live a sinless life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It simply means before I was really a slave to these sins, and now if I do stumble in sin, it's because I choose to. Because I have this fallen nature still inside of me, These, the spirit of God's inside of me and my old nature, my human fallen nature. But the other thing that dogs us is the fear of death. You might be here, and, and maybe you're one of those people. I, I've met people through the years, even Christians, that are still absolutely terrified of death. And when I talked to them about it, I said, well, do you believe in Jesus, that he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death? Yeah, I believe in Jesus with all my heart, but I'm, I'm really afraid to die. I'm like, the last time your heart beats, your last breath, you're gonna wake up 
to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You instantaneously are gonna be with the Lord in the most glorious place that exists. And truly, what, what is to be afraid of? That it's too good? I mean, now, now Solomon, he, he says some unusual things in Ecclesiastes chapter seven. But he says the day of our death is better than the day of our birth. And you go, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. The day you're born, you're gonna live your whole, you got your whole life in front of you, right? But in a fallen sinful world, what does that mean? The day you're born, all the heartache and the struggles of sin and temptation and life are all in front of you. Drama, drama, drama. <laughs> you got 70, 80 years of drama, drama, drama. And he says, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Meaning that if I know the Lord by faith, and obviously Solomon is only thinking of those who know the Lord, then I'm gonna be set free from all that sin and drama and I'm gonna be with the Lord in glory. So what do we do? We, Solomon kind of unpacked this for us because he was, God gave him supernatural wisdom and he, he gave us some insight. But when a baby is born, what do we do? We get together and celebrate. We have baby showers and woo, a baby's born. Dads go to work and hand out cigars. It's a boy. But if we took Solomon's advice, when a baby is born, we'd all go to the house and we would weep together. Oh, 70 or 80 years of drama, it's gonna be so hard, but we're so sorry, you know, but this is the way it is, and we all have to go through it. <laughs> but then the, the day that somebody dies and they believe in Jesus and they go to heaven, we should have a party. They have died, went to glory, and left all of us behind to pay the bills. Why do you feel bad for them? They go, I knew it, they were only 19, and I'm like the lucky bum. Why did he get to go ahead of us? Now, sincerely, to set aside the jest, when people pass away, it breaks our heart because we have relationship. We're not grieving for them because they're going to heaven. Paul the Apostle told the Thessalonians that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We do grieve. Why? Because we love them. We miss them. And they've left us behind, and they're with the Lord. But I want you to know that when somebody that I know, a loved one that I love, dies to go to heaven, I'm never sad for them, ever. And it doesn't matter what age, never. But I am sad for me if I had a relationship with them because I miss them. So the grief is in a, an unusual dynamic. Now, these are the, this is the ministry that Jesus came to offer. He came to offer his body as a sacrifice, and he came to be the minister that conquers sin and conquers death, which the Old Testament priest could not do. He's better than that. They couldn't do that. Now, in verse six, it tells us, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Those promises that if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. All the promises that the New Testament give us are incredible promises. They're better promises because they're based upon God's faithfulness to us. And that's the beautiful ministry of all this. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But as it says in Hebrews 1.4 that he, Jesus, is better than the angels in Hebrews 7, 19, it says he gives us a better hope. 
in Hebrews 9.23 with better sacrifices, and Hebrews 12.24 speaks better things. All these things Jesus does for us, and since this is true, he's so much better, it tells us that something else has failed because if we had the Old Testament and it was getting the job done, then we would stick with that, right? It's the same thing when people tell me, all you have to do is be a good person to go to heaven. I said, is, is that, you think that's real? If that's so, why did Jesus come? He would have just sent an email out to everybody and said, keep being good, you're gonna go to heaven, right? But heaven only accepts perfection. Do you understand this? You cannot go to heaven unless you are 100% righteous, which none of us are. I would ask for a show of hands who think they are not, but there's always a delusional person that raises his hand, and then I'll have to have a conversation with them afterwards. There's always somebody that thinks they got it together, but no, honestly, if you're human, you have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You are not good enough to go to God's perfect heaven. So the only way for you to get there is to either be perfect, which nobody is, or accept the perfect one that paid the price for all of your imperfections and be hidden in Christ, so I'm going to heaven based on Jesus being the perfect sacrifice. I am going to heaven based on someone's perfection, it's just not mine. It's his, he was totally sinless. The only one to ever walk the planet that was totally sinless. But it tells us that there's something wrong with the Old Testament. Now there's no th nothing wrong, God gave the Old Testament covenant, so there's nothing wrong with God's plan, but his plan had a purpose, and that was that the law would show you your need. The law is a schoolmaster to show you how far you fall short. The law is to show you you're not perfect so that you need a savior, for it says in verse seven, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Isn't that true? That's just good logic. If the first one was perfect and you could get to heaven based upon animal sacrifices to God, then things would just continue. We'd keep sacrificing animals and we would all go to heaven. But that is not the case. So he continues on in verse eight, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In Jeremiah 31, an Old Testament prophet, the Lord spoke and he said, in the future, I'm gonna make this new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of God. And it's gonna be a new covenant based on who Jesus is, and that's what we're gonna talk about in the next few moments. It's, there's five things. But the thing about the fault that was found in the Old Testament, it wasn't with God's law, it wasn't with God's nature, it's that the Old Testament law put the burden of responsibility on us. Do this and you'll live. But we're always falling short, right? Do this and live. But Christianity, it's live and do this. I received Christ, now I'm 100% righteous. The day that I received Christ, all messed up in my life, that day, he imputed to me his perfect righteousness. 
So there's positional righteousness and there's practical righteousness. Positional righteousness, if you believe in Jesus, you are 100% righteous in God's sight from that day forward. And it's not based upon you having a bad day or a bad week or if you kicked the dog three days ago, okay? It's not based on that. It's not based on how much you read your Bible or how much you pray. It's by faith. It's impossible to please God by faith. Abraham believed God when God promised him that his descendants were gonna be like the stars of the heavens and like the sand of the seashore. It says Abraham believed God by faith and God accounted to him that righteousness. So when I believe in God's gift of his son, Jesus, and you believe in Jesus, at that moment, here you are tonight, and, and maybe just for the sake of this illustration, you had a lousy week. You were just a total jerk. You were a jerk. And you're like, how can I even be saved? I better go to God speak tonight and get saved all over again. No, you had a bad week, right? But it does not change because the Old Testament was based upon a covenant where the responsibility, man was to fill the responsibility and then to experience his failure and to long for a savior. Even when God promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the heavens in Genesis 15, check it out. And he's gonna make, he goes, how will I know, Lord? And the Lord's like, okay, you want a covenant. So he brings a bull, he brings a goat, he brings a, just a whole bunch of animals, and he cuts them in half. And this is the way they made a covenant. They cut those animals in half, and they split them apart like this. And then if you made in a covenant or an agreement, a contract with someone, you would split an animal half, and then you would walk through it. And by walking through it, it's called cutting covenant. By walking through the split animal, you would be saying, I promise to take care of this. That was an Old Testament thing. So Abraham, he splits all these animals, and God's going to show up. But Abraham, a darkness comes, kind of like it was daylight savings or something, and Abraham, he can't keep his eyes open. A deep sleep comes upon him. And the Lord, it's as if the Lord is saying, Abraham, I'm gonna make this covenant by faith with you, but you know, it's really gonna be based upon my faithfulness, not yours. And so you, you need to go to sleep and not promise any grandiose things. You just go to sleep. And the, and the Lord moves through with this smoking oven type of thing, like a torch, to reveal his, his presence. And he goes between the animals. And he promises this to Abraham. You see, the new covenant is based on Jesus' obedience, not yours. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm only talking about positional righteousness. The Lord says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obedience is part of the Christian life. I'm not discounting that at all. What I'm saying is that I am obedient out of a position of righteousness. I'm seeking to follow the Lord in obedience out of a place of righteousness. Therefore, I don't walk around condemned all the time. Do you walk around condemned all the time? If you do, you don't understand positional righteousness. It doesn't mean you're not, I'm as big a mess up as you are. <laughs> so it's not like that I don't have good reason to walk around thinking that I'm a, a real jerk or something. The reality is, is that I understand what Jesus has done for me and therefore, I want to be obedient. I want to show my love to him by following him. Having said all that, this new covenant that Jer the Lord prophesies through Jeremiah about, picking it up in verse 10, he's gonna give five things that this new covenant is going to have. And you and I, and now the writer of Hebrews is bringing this up. It's an Old Testament prophet, Hebrew prophet, 
talking about a new covenant with God's people, and he wants them to understand that God spoke beforehand about this, and he wants them to learn about it and understand. In verse 10, it says, For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So number one is a new transformation from the inside out. Religion says look like this on the outside, doesn't it? You ever see somebody that, uh, people that go to the same church and they all have the same haircut? They all have the same clothes. They all have the, it's, almost, it's very cult-like. And I mean, you guys, you guys are all like a really motley crew that looks nothing like that. Why is that? Because the emphasis is not on, this is the poster child Christian haircut, right? This is, you know, girls don't wear makeup, girls only wear dresses, or they go through this. They have this list of what, quote, it looks like to be a Christian. I'm like, you, you got a Polaroid of what it looks like to be a Christian? I thought it was about your heart and your faith in God, which are internal things that change you from the inside out. You see, that's the difference. A relationship with Jesus changes you from the inside out. Religion wants you to conform from the outside in, so it never changes your heart. It never changes what's on the inside. But when the Lord writes his word on your heart and in your mind, you begin to move through life, not with this sense of outward pressure to conform to a list of laws and rules, but actually from an internal desire, because God's changed my heart. God's changed my mind. I, I want to do these things. I used to think, because I had some Christians that would drag me to church when I was young. I absolutely hated church. Everything about it. I hated the music. I, I, you know, it was an old person church, so I was a kid. It was like all gray hair. I'm like, these people are all three funerals away from closing the doors on this place. And the, the music was old, and the people were old, and the preaching was like old school fire and brimstone, like, and you're gonna be taken to the gates of hell! You know what I mean? I was like, like totally terrified as a little kid. And when somebody mentioned church to me, it's almost like, you know, PTSD. And I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want to, anything to do with their God or their Bible or their righteousness or whatever. And when I did think about heaven or hell, obviously I want heaven, but I want to live like hell and go to heaven. And that doesn't really work in God's economy if you know anything about the Bible. And, but the reality is, is that I thought, I don't want to be one of those people. And I had this outward conformity picture. I don't want to talk like that or act like that or function like that but when I received Jesus and he wrote his desires on my heart and my mind I didn't I, I thought when you received Jesus like he gave you a nerd pill and like you became the biggest awkward nerd on the planet and um it was just the only people that I knew that were Christian were nerds and dorks from my perspective growing up and I'm just sharing with you my own experience. I'm sure you, you guys had other experiences, but that was my experience. So I didn't want anything to do with it. But then it's so weird when I, God came into my life and he met me all alone in the bondage of my own sin and spoke to me and I gave my heart to Jesus 
I wasn't at church. I wasn't around a bunch of religious people. I was all by myself. And it was so radically supernatural. And God just wrote his desires on my heart and my mind, and I just began to change from the inside out. People, I had nobody chasing me around, wagging a finger at me. It was just God began to change me from the inside out. And my friends began to say, hey, you're weird now. You're different. And I'm like, well, why? why am I? Well, you want to read your Bible and go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and you don't want to get high with us and get drunk. And I'm like, so I'm weird now? Because I actually started wanting to read the Bible. I actually started wanting to go to church and hang out with other Christians because all of a sudden I had this strange attraction to other believers. It's like we're family. You see, this new covenant is not a religious straitjacket that sucks the joy out of your life. It is a transforming, vibrant relationship with the most amazing Savior, Jesus, that changes you from the inside out. And you now have this incredible relationship and these new desires that you never even thought that you would have. Even the picture, because I got saved like almost 40 years ago, even the picture of me being here on a Saturday night teaching a Bible study is a very, very bizarre thought, if you knew knew me before. (laughs) But here we are. The first thing is there's an internal transformation. The second thing is it's a new relationship. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, intrinsically, I know God, and I'm his, and he's mine. And it's this intimate relationship that's intuitive that is internal, and he's written his desires on my heart and my mind, and now I have this new relationship that I can cry out, Abba, Father, which is a spirit of adoption that Paul the Apostle talks to the Romans about in Romans 8, 15. And he said, we no longer are in the bondage of fear, but with the spirit of adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father, I have this relationship with the Father and with his son Jesus who gave his life for me and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of me. So I have a tighter relationship. There's no one I have a tighter relationship with than God. It, even the closest human relationship, with my, which is my precious wife, that we've been married for 35 years, and if I don't mess things up, we'll be 36 years next May. And, and the reality is, is that even my wife, her, her intimacy with God, and we realized this early as we became Christians, is that Jesus has to be number one for each of us so that we can be the best version of ourselves for each other. But it's because I can cry, Abba, Father. Now, do you sense that God has written his desires on your heart and your mind and you have the closest relationship with him and if so you would easily say Jesus is the Lord of your life because Jesus is the one that made that possible because there was a huge sin barrier between you and God where that could not happen without this taking place so there's a new transformation there's a new relationship and the third thing in verse 11 There's a new revelation. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So now there's a new revelation or a new access to the Lord that common people from the least to the greatest can know. A a little uh, child, my 
of a family member and, and they were telling us about their, their three-year-old worshiping on the front row of church and just loving Jesus. And, and uh, it was so sweet just the way they were describing things. And, and to the oldest person that is in love with Jesus, from the least to the greatest, or it can be a person believing in Jesus in the White House, and then the guy that's just, hey, he's washing dishes in the back of the restaurant. God's no respecter of persons. This ultimately, this third one, there is a great, greatest fulfillment in the book of Revelation when there's an incredible revival among the Jewish people, and I don't have time to delineate that and to dive into that, but there's now a new revelation. Even my conversion is one that was very, I mean, there were, weren't people involved. God just broke into my world, talked to me, and saved my soul, and I'm so thankful that he did. The other thing is that John the Apostle tells us in 1 John chapter 2 that we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us. You just, you start reading your Bible, God's going to talk to you. Now, before you're a Christian, how, how many of you before you're a Christian tried to read the Bible? Anybody here? A few. Before you're a Christian, you try to read the Bible, and it's like reading a phone book. You're like, what? Don't get it. It's like... No, I'm not getting it. Now, I know some people that got saved through reading the Bible, so that's a different experience. The Lord, you read the Bible and, and God led you into salvation. But I know people that have tried to read the Bible. I've had people that tell me they're an atheist and they read the Bible from cover to cover. And, but without the spirit to illuminate and to teach you, this is a spiritual book and there's spiritual revelation that has to come. That's why the spirit is the one that can teach us and to reveal things to us. The fourth aspect of this new covenant is a new forgiveness. And this is the beautiful thing for fallen, broken sinners, isn't it? A new forgiveness in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God chooses not to remember or to hold those things against us anymore. He's gonna be kind to you. Whatever you struggled with yesterday, whatever you're gonna struggle with next month, through the process of confession and what has been called the Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Is there anything that Jesus won't cleanse me from? No. There's nothing that Jesus will not wash and cleanse if I simply confess to him, which the Greek word is to say the same thing. It means that God's calling this behavior that I'm doing sin, and I agree with him. I say, yes, Lord, it is sin. I'm gonna say the same thing that you're saying. And, and maybe you're in this place and you just feel beat up. You've been really blowing it. And I want you to know that this incredible forgiveness, it, it never grows old. Because I, even though, I, I thought maybe you were naive like I was as a young Christian. I thought there's a point in your Christian life where you just arrived you arrived and you just, you just really don't struggle with sin anymore or temptation. And I thought, you know, maybe it's 10 years in. What, what is it? I don't know what it is. Well, how far is it in? And you just kind of cruise around like Billy Graham. Like somebody is just, they, they don't put their pants on one leg at a time. They're just a holy man of God. And uh, that, that's not the way it is. <laughs> As you grow in your walk with the Lord, you do sin less, but you're never gonna become sinless, right? It's the weirdest thing, because when I was a young Christian, I mean, I, as a young Christian, I was really just trying to survive a week without the big sins. And if I did, I was like Rocky on the steps, like, going strong now. 
But as you get older, what happens is your conscience gets more sensitive by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and, and I repent more and sin less than I ever have in my whole life because I have this thought or I have this attitude or like, oh, Lord, if I let those thoughts continue down that road, that's going to be destructive. It's no good, right? It's no good. And so this forgiveness, you guys, is for us today. It's for us tonight. It's for tomorrow. And the, the, the efficacy or the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross is that all of your sins that you've ever committed past, the ones presently you're struggling with, or your future sins, were all nailed to the cross. The judgment and the punishment for them. Now that's not to give us some attitude of cheap grace like, all right, Jesus paid it all, woohoo! You know, and go live in sin. Because when you really love God, Jesus said that. He said, if you love me, you'll want to obey me. You'll want to turn from a life of sin. You want to walk with me. Now the fifth thing is this new agreement. In verse 13 it says, and that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant was growing obsolete. As a matter of fact, as the writing of Hebrews, we know because he talks about all the priests and their sacrifices that the temple is still functioning. Vespasian, uh, Titus Vespasian, came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. The temple is totally destroyed, and from that point forward, Jews had, have never had access for the last 2,000 years to animal sacrifices. Because if they hold on to only the Old Testament and don't see Jesus as their Messiah coming into the, the scene, that which is vanishing away is there's no way now to cover sins. Because you see, the, the, the forgiveness we just talked about is total and complete forgiveness, Whereas in the Old Testament, it's kofar, it's covering, that the blood, and, and the writer of Hebrews unpacks this in chapter 10 of Hebrews. He says that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away or remove sin, it could only cover it. It just covered the sin, it did not remove it. Jesus' blood, whew, it's gone. Praise the Lord, right? You got any garbage in your past? I'm like, hallelujah, hallelujah, <laughs> Because of the forgiveness in my life. So this new covenant, the old is vanishing away. Even as they're writing this book, the days of the temple are numbered. That's why Orthodox Jews, they want to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem and to start the, the uh, Old Testament sacrifices again, those who are following Judaism, the Old Testament. And Prophetically, according to the book of Revelation, they are going to, there's going to be a political leader that allows them to do that. That is coming in the future, and probably not far away. Even though the Dome of the Rock, the Muslims control the Temple Mount, if you've been to Israel, in Jerusalem, the, the Dome of the Rock, which is the second highest uh, Muslim uh, holy site after Mecca, because, uh, well, I don't, I don't need to give you a Muslim lesson. Never mind. So, uh, it, the reality is the temple is going to be rebuilt in the future. And, um, and through a, a process, this political leader, after they get their, it built and the animal sacrifice is going again, he's going to stop them, and he's the guy that we call the Antichrist. He's going to stop their sacrifices and say, now worship me. And that's at the three and a half year mark of the Great Tribulation. And then truly a great revival breaks out among the Jews. 
They're going to have 144,000 mean, lean preaching machines, preaching Jesus. They're going to have two amazing prophets in Jerusalem. It's going to be a crazy time. But because uh, I personally hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, I'm going to be watching from the balcony up in heaven eating popcorn, and I don't plan on being here. So that was just extra credit. I don't even know why I went down that road. Anyway. <laughs> but to wrap it up, I love this verse to end our time tonight because the writer of Hebrews says it so well. In chapter 7, verse 25, speaking of Jesus, this is what he says. Therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save, look at this language in the New King James, to the uttermost. <laughs> I like to say from the guttermost to the uttermost, Jesus is able to save us. But who, who's gonna be saved? Those who come to God through him. Those who come to the Father through faith in the Son who died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is in heaven 24-7 praying for us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He is praying for us. He's making intercession for us night and day for eternity because he loves you. Because he loves me. He's interceding for us in an incredible way. I'm gonna wrap it up and we're gonna pray and maybe tonight you need some intercessory prayer. And we are all ministers of the gospel and we have a prayer team that would love to lay hands on you and pray for you. Or maybe tonight you wanna give your life to Christ that you would be saved to the uttermost from your life as you know it and this salvation until we see Jesus face to face. One day, you guys... Think of this, one day you and I are gonna be in heaven. And, and people ask me, this is the number one question people ask me, hey, do you think we'll know each other in heaven? And I think, well, I, we know each other now, right? Yes, I hope we're not stupider in heaven than we are here. <laughs> I mean, right, if I, I know you here, I'm gonna know you there. As a matter of fact, we're gonna know as we are fully known. And uh, we're, heaven's not gonna be a place where everybody has a name tag. You're just gonna know. Who, who everyone is. And I, I just want to hang out with God's people for eternity and, and, and just fellowship about how good God has been to us and how Jesus got all of us safely into his kingdom through faith in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And we pray that you would strengthen us and build us up tonight as we walk with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are better than anything or anyone, Lord, you're better than the old covenant that we might have this new covenant with you in this dynamic relationship. And Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to fall upon us, refresh us and strengthen us and your people that they might know vibrantly, intuitively, you in an intimate way. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And I just pray that you would draw those who have yet to surrender their life to you Lord, draw those to a place of repentance that just simply need to seek your forgiveness tonight, whereas you have made a way for them to experience that through the washing of your, um, your blood, Lord Jesus. So strengthen them for those hands that are hanging down, the feeble knees, Lord, those who are weary, just fill them and infuse them with your strength and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. 